Well, that's going to be hard to top. I don't have any hats. Do have the Word of God. Let me ask you to look in your Bibles at 2 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to look this morning beginning in verse 12. Eventually, over the next uh, two, three, four, five, six weeks, we're going to look at uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses, verse 12 through chapter 4, verse 6. And the reason we come to this passage of Scripture is because we've spent all this time for several months looking at the development of God's covenant throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. And this, these verses here in 2 Corinthians, this is, this is one of those passages which makes reference to the new covenant, and it's, it's in this passage that the Apostle Paul describes himself and his co-workers as being ministers of the new covenant. And it has everything to do with what Chris was just speaking to the children about. It has everything to do with understanding that throughout the Old Testament, everything anticipated, everything was in preparation for, everything looked forward to the coming of the King, to the coming of King Jesus. And part of what provokes the writing of 2 Corinthians is that there are people in the church in Corinth, or people at least speaking uh, to the members of the church in Corinth, who are trying to suggest that Jesus is something less than the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Good man, certainly worthy of our emulation in so many ways, but not the King of kings, not the Lord of lords. In fact, not even this, this Jesus who would have lived just a generation before, that this Jesus, these teachers were insisting, not even as important as Moses. Now, what in the world do we care? I mean, why in the world should we take the time to look at this passage and that these issues should be of any concern to us? Because there's nothing new under the sun. Because the claim of Jesus Christ, as revealed to us in the Gospels and throughout the epistles that further explain His ministry to us, is that He is the Creator, the Savior, the Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one before whom we should bow, the one before whom, in bow, for whom, before whom in having bowed, we then rise up to serve. To simply think highly of Jesus is of no importance. I, can, I could stand here and give you a list of the names of some rather significant people throughout human history who have thought highly of Jesus, uh, who have wondered at this morality that Jesus taught, but they did not believe that Jesus was King of kings and Lord of lords. And not believing that, and not just simply believing that, but that belief exercising within them a, a response of, of love and of, of obedience and of, of service to the one by whom and for whom they were made. 
the lack of that response has proven disastrous. And so even in our own day, you could probably find a lot of people who will speak very well of Jesus, who think highly of Jesus, but they have no idea who He is and the impact of Jesus upon their lives is negligent, you know, is, is, is almost non-measurable at best. So I want us to look at this passage, because while it may, it, it may seem to be one of those passages that you would say, okay, that's really kind of interesting, but what in the world has that got to do with me? It's got everything to do with you because there's nothing new under the sun. Now, we're going to proceed slowly here. Um, <laughs> it had been my intention to preach from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, through 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 this morning. And then it became my intention to preach on 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, through 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 11. And then I decided to shorten that to verse 6 of chapter 3. And now I'm not confident we'll get to verse 6 because there's so much going on here that we really, really need to take hold of. So pray with me and we'll look together at the Word of God. Father, as we come to your Scripture, I pray that you would open it to us. I pray that we would hear the voice of this, your Apostle. And I pray that we would recognize the circumstances that exist in the church, at the church, and in the church at Corinth, and that it would be a uh, it would be a challenge to us, and perhaps for some that it would be a wake-up call. Furthermore, I pray, Lord, that we would marvel at the reality of what we are told here, where we are reminded once more that all of Old Testament Scripture anticipates Jesus. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I've given you uh, in your bulletin, I hope you've found it, a little map. Looks like this should be in your bulletin. And, you know, you don't need to take this out unless you're like me. I, I hate to read. I just don't like reading these passages without a map in front of me so that I can at least visualize a little bit about what's going on here. Because these aren't fairy tales. I mean, these are stories about real people in real places, and this is where their travels took place. And I think it is significant, at least for me it's significant, to look at a map and say, okay, from here to here to there to there, wow, look at all that's going on here. So Paul writes, beginning in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 12, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and I went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God 
who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's Word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or, or from you? You yourselves are our letter of recommendation, written on our hearts to be known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything that's coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Now, I would suggest to you, if you follow the progress here in this passage, at least in reference to Paul himself, you have the apostle testifying, confessing to the fact that he is restless. You then have the apostle uh, testifying to the fact that he is thankful. And then you have the apostle making the claim that through Christ in God, he is competent, competent along with his co-workers to serve as ministers of the new covenant, restless, thankful, competent. Let's talk about it a little bit. You see, the, 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 um, the realities of life, I mean, they often leave us feeling restless, don't they? I mean, the realities of life. I mean, things, I mean, how often do things simply not work out the way we plan, the way we, we thought they should. I mean, how often do we find ourselves facing difficult circumstances and, and painful heartaches? And who of us, in the midst of, the, of such realities, who of us does not ask the question, why? What is going on here? This is not how I planned it. This is not the way I thought it would be. Well, I suggest to you that the Apostle Paul, being a man just like us, don't turn Paul into a superhero. He's not. 
He's a man just like us, greatly used by the Lord, marvelously, wonderfully used by the Lord, used by the Lord to grant to us so much of the, so much of the truths that are, uh, so many of the truths that are given to us here in, in, in the Scriptures. And yet, here is Paul, and he says, when I came to Troas to preach the gospel, now just look at this line. Think about these words. Even though a door was open for me in the Lord. The man comes to Troas. We'll talk about why he came to Troas in just a moment. You can see Troas there on your map. It's at the northern end of the Aegean Sea. He comes to Troas. He comes to Troas to preach the gospel. He testifies to the fact that the Lord provided for him an open door. I mean, it's, you know, he comes to Troas and people, there, obviously there are a number of people eager to hear what Paul has to say, what Paul has to preach. And then he says, but even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest. Now, how can that possibly be? How can it possibly be that you can go somewhere to preach the gospel, the Lord opens the door, and then you say, yeah, you know, all kinds of people want to hear what I have to say, but I am just not at rest. As a matter of fact, I am so restless, end of verse 13, that I took leave of those people. I took leave of that situation in which there was an open door for the preaching of the gospel. I took leave of them, and I went on into Macedonia which is northern Greece, probably going to the city of Philippi, which you might well locate there on your map. So why is Paul restless? And why does he hurry on to Philippi in Macedonia? Well, he tells us, my spirit, verse 13, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. Why is he looking for Titus? What's going on here? Let, let me give you a little bit of the story here so that perhaps you can understand all of this just a little more uh, clearly. First, you have to understand, see Ephesus on the right side of your map? See Ephesus? Paul has been forced to leave Ephesus. I mean, he comes to Troas in part because he's been forced out of Ephesus, and he's been forced out of Ephesus after two years of a highly successful ministry. If you read the account in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 20, you read the account, it will tell you that Paul's two years in Ephesus impacted all of the western end of Turkey. It led to the founding of churches like Colossae, uh, like uh, the church at uh, um, uh, Colossae and the, uh, uh, now my mind, and other churches, at Laodicea and, 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 lit, and other churches. Uh, in that particular Hierapolis and Laodicea and Colossae, in all of those places. It's during those two years while Paul was in Ephesus that not his, not Paul himself, but the impact of Paul's ministry is such that others have gone out from Ephesus and they've planted churches elsewhere. And now there's been an uproar and Paul has been forced to leave this, this uh, strategically uh, located city. He's been forced uh, out of the town. He's come to Troas, 
And the, the other reason that he's come to Troas is not only because he's been forced out of Ephesus, he's come to Troas because he's on his way around the land. You can see how the land loops around here. He's on his way to Troas so that he can go on into Macedonia and finally come back down to Corinth. And the reason he's on his way to Corinth is because all that the Lord has accomplished through him in Corinth seems to be on the very brink of total and utter destruction. So I want you to feel the humanity of Paul as he writes, as he testifies, as he tells us what he does here in 2 Chronicles chapter 2 and verses 12 and 13. I mean, this man is Second uh, Corinthians chapter 2, ver thank you, whoever said that. So second, just go with what I mean and not with what I say. I'm getting old and my mind is hazy. Second Corinthians, and that's really true. Second um, Corinthians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, uh, feel the humanity here as he arrives in Troas, forced out of Ephesus. And what lies before him? A confrontation. You like confrontation? You like confrontation with people who don't, who people about, with people who have been talking about you behind your back? You like confrontation with people who have been spreading rumors about you, none of which are true? You like having to deal with that kind of confrontation? Do you like rejection? Do you like rejection? Paul has been rejected out of Ephesus, and now he's faced with confrontation in Corinth. And his heart is restless. I take, I, I take wonderful comfort in that. I mean, as I said earlier, you know, just don't, don't lose sight of the fact that these are people just like you and me. These aren't superheroes. I mean, I just think it's marvelous that the Apostle Paul would, would confess to us what some of us might go, well, Paul, you who believe in the sovereignty of God, I mean, how can you possibly allow yourself to become upset and restless for crying out loud, Paul? Don't you believe what you preach? That's silly. He's restless. Why is he restless? I think he's restless, not only because of the tensions of being rejected and facing the confrontation that will take place in Corinth, I think he's restless because he loves the people in Ephesus, and he loves the people in Corinth. He cares about them. What's going to happen to this church in Ephesus now that I've been forced to leave? What's going to happen when I get to Corinth and have to speak rather sharply to these people I dearly love? That just churns within him. How could it not churn? How could he not feel restless? Of course he knows that the Lord is sovereign. But he also knows that the Lord accomplishes his sovereign purposes through people like you and me. And sometimes the tasks to which we are called 
Not easy. Sometimes they're incredibly difficult. Well, let me tell you a little bit about Paul and Corinth. You see, this is why I can't get through all this stuff. You see, it's just because of my love for you. Um, you know, because I want you to understand this as much as I possibly can. If you look at your map, you can see that Corinth is very strategically located so that it becomes the center of trade from, from, Western, from the Western Roman Empire to the Eastern Roman Empire, and it becomes the focus of trade from Southern Greece into Northern Greece. And by the way, uh, Corinth at, the, at this time would have been considered a very wealthy city, and it may shock, it may stun you a little bit to know Corinth, it's estimated that Corinth at this time was a city of 750,000 people. You know, so this is a city five times the size of the city of Chattanooga. You know, 750,000, this is a city what? The size of, what would that be? The size of San Francisco or something uh, on that, per, on somewhere on, on that, of that magnitude. And, and Paul writes 2 Corinthians um, I think he writes 2 Corinthians, as you look at your map there, I think he writes 2 Corinthians from, from Philippi. Um, he writes 2 Corinthians in preparation um, for his uh, third visit to these people. First, Paul's first came to Corinth in the early 50s AD during his second missionary journey. And over a period of some 18 months, the Lord through him established a church of Gentile and Greek believers uh, who, who received Paul's preaching uh, of the new covenant and, and professed faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and King. And then two or three years later, sometime in the mid-50s A.D., Paul will make a second visit to Corinth. If you look at 2 Corinthians 2.1, it's this visit that Paul describes as painful. He will make a second visit to Corinth, and it will be a painful visit because he will go to Corinth for the purpose of encouraging the people and leading the people in the exercise of church discipline because of some rampant immorality that had just manifested itself in the church. Paul will then leave. He'll go back. He'll go back to Jerusalem, go back to Caesarea, make a third missionary journey. He'll come back to Ephesus where he will then stay for a couple of years. And while in Ephesus on his third missionary journey, Paul will send Titus, one of his many co-workers, Titus, Timoth, Timothy, Epaphras, you know, those individuals that get named for us in the Gospels, uh, Luke himself. Um, Paul will send Titus. Paul. Uh, after his quick visit to Corinth, at the end of his second missionary journey, he goes back to Caesarea, probably visits Jerusalem, returns to his hometown. Now on his third missionary journey, he returns to Ephesus. And from Ephesus, he sends Titus, one of his co-workers, to, to check on the people at Corinth. He sends him across the Aegean Sea to check on the people in Corinth, to minister to their needs as well as he could, and to give Paul some sort of evaluation of what the situation, of what the circumstances are in the city of Corinth. So, Paul, having been forced to leave Ephesus, goes to Troas where he anticipates that 
Titus will have sailed from Corinth and will meet him in Troas, but when he gets to Troas, the winter weather has begun, the time for sailing is ending, uh, Titus is not there. So Paul knows, even though he doesn't have email, Paul knows if there's any possibility of his meeting up with Titus, it will be because Titus has come across land and will meet him in one of the cities of Macedonia. So Paul goes on into Macedonia, and there he does find Titus, again, most likely in the city of Philippi. And it's in response to Titus's report concerning the church in Corinth that Paul writes 2 Corinthians in preparation for his arrival in southern Greece. Now, I want you to, I just want you to feel what I think is just a, a stunning transition here. Look again at verses 12 and 13. Paul says, I came to Troas, I was restless, didn't find Titus, went on into Macedonia. And then he begins verse 14. I mean, he's been forced out of Ephesus. He's about to make a very difficult visit to Corinth. He's restless because he can't find Titus. And yet, stunningly, I mean, just think of the transition and emotion here. Stunningly, Paul begins verse 14 with these words, but thanks be to God. Wow. We go from being restless in verse 13 to thanks be to God. I mean, when life becomes complicated and trying and painful, and I have to tell you, those are not often the first words out of my mouth. Life becomes difficult and, and complicated and, and, and painful and trying. The first thing I have to say in response is usually not, thanks be to God. What a glorious mess I'm in here. You know, I've been forced out of Ephesus. I'm faced with a painful confrontation in the city of Corinth. I can't find Titus anywhere. I don't know what's going on. I don't know what's going on back in Ephesus. I don't know what's going on in Corinth. Thanks be to God. Wow. What's Paul thankful for? That's even more astonishing. Is he thankful for being forced out of Ephesus? Is he thankful for having to is, is he thankful for his anticipation of having to deal with troublesome people in Corinth? What is he thankful for? That's even more challenging. And this is just why I can't hurry through these verses. But what's he thankful for? Look at verse 14. He is thankful because he knows who he is. He knows whose he is. Okay, all of that sounds like fancy wording. Stick with me. He knows who he is. He knows whose he is. What does that mean? He knows that he is a slave. Thanks be to God, I'm a slave. I'm a slave. As Chris was telling the kids today, I'm a slave of King Jesus. Thanks be to God. You say, where is that? It's right here. 
Verse 14, thanks be to God in Christ, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. People in Corinth would have known exactly what Paul was talking about. He's describing the, uh, the practice in, in, in the Roman culture that when a general has won a great victory, he enters uh, his hometown in triumphal procession, and he brings, he, he leads in triumphal procession, leading behind him all of those whom he has taken captive. And as captives, uh, part of their responsibility is now to sprinkle incense and let the aroma filter through the air, the sweet-smelling savor, the sweet-smelling savor of victory. And Paul says, that's who I am. I'm one of those slaves being led in procession by my King, King Jesus, and to me is given the glorious task of spreading the aroma, spreading the fragrance of my King's victory over sin, death, and the grave, spreading that aroma everywhere. Of course, there's also a Jewish element in all of this. There's also a Jewish element in all of this, and it's really hard for the commentators to figure out exactly which one Paul is focused upon most pointedly. I'm not quite sure I know. I would probably think he's more focused upon the Roman procession, but there is the, there is the, uh, uh, the Old Testament background here of what? Of offering up incense to God, a sweet-smelling savor of God a sweet-smelling savor to God. And of course, it's the Apostle Paul who will call upon us to do what? To offer up our bodies as living sacrifices unto the Lord. Whichever picture you want to take, here is the Apostle Paul giving thanks to God because he knows who he is and he knows whose he is. He is a slave being led in triumph by his king. And to Paul, as the slave of the king, is given the glorious task, responsibility, and opportunity to spread everywhere the aroma of Christ. And that's who you are. That's who you are. You're a slave of the king to whom is given the task, the responsibility, the privilege to spread everywhere the aroma of the victory of your king over sin and death and the grave. And that's why Paul can say, you know, no matter what the circumstances here, my task remains the same. No matter what the situation, my task remains the same. No matter what may be going on, my privilege and responsibility remains the same, and that is to follow my King and to spread everywhere the aroma of His victory, which to some will be the fragrance of life. To others, yes, it'll be the fragrance of death. But that's the task. That's the task that is mine. And Paul doesn't take that task 
lightly. Paul doesn't just simply go, that's my task, isn't this great? Wow, I'm a slave of the king, and I'm given this wonderful privilege and opportunity of spreading everywhere the aroma of my king's victory over. He doesn't just take all of that lightly. I mean, look at where he goes. Look at the end of verse 16. After he rehearses all of that, what does he say? Oh, who is sufficient for these things? I mean, if I, you know, as I speak those words, as I tell you that like the Apostle Paul, this is who you are. If by grace through faith you have embraced Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and King, this is who you are. You are a slave of the King who is given the task and the responsibility to spread everywhere the aroma of your Lord's victory, of His victory over sin, death, and the grave. You know, some of you hear that and go, oh. <laughs> that's just because I can't communicate it to you the way I should. But if some of you hear that, as I hope some of you do, if some of you hear that and go, oh, my Lord, my Lord, my Lord, why would you give to someone like me such responsibility, such a task? I mean, I can't do this. Well, I want you to realize. I just want you to focus for a moment on the fact Paul is saying exactly the same thing. Paul's saying exactly the same thing. Paul is saying, who is sufficient for these things? Who can carry out this task? Who can carry out this responsibility? And that's, can I take a few more moments? And that's, I'm not asking. And that's, um, and that's, that was, that was what, do you, what do you call that? What kind of question is it? I don't, whatever that is. It's a question I'm not looking for an answer to. Okay, so, um, and he's especially asking that question because look at verse 17. He's especially asking that question because he knows that there are men in Corinth who are saying, we, and we're going to talk about this more next week, we are the true apostles of Christ. We are super apostles. You need to listen to us. Why would you listen to Paul? The Paul who is crying out, of course, they don't know what Paul's crying out here at verse 16, but let's just assume they might. The Paul who cries out at the end of verse 16, who is sufficient for these things? That's a great question for Paul to ask because you all know Paul. I mean, the guy is short, he's ugly, he doesn't speak well, you know, and he's got sort of a, you know, he sort of has a grating personality, you know, he's just he can really get on your nerves, you know, he, uh, uh, but he's not eloquent. He's not a good orator. I mean, here in the midst of Greco-Roman culture, we all know that if anyone has anything of any truth to say, then he should be a great orator. Well, Don, how many primrose lanes have we been led by great oration? There is many an individual who is a great orator who has nothing to say, nothing worth, worth hearing. 
But that's what, these, that's what these super apostles are saying about Paul. Of course he's asking who is sufficient for these things. I mean, he's short, he's ugly, he doesn't speak well, and his personality, that's his personality. His person, I didn't plan that. And his personality, his personality leaves a lot, just leaves a lot to be desired. A lot to be desired. You know what? Paul knows that. Which is the reason why, in part, Paul asks, who is sufficient for these things? Who is sufficient for these things? But I want you to see this. We're going to skip ahead so that we can wind this up this morning. When it comes to answering that question, that's where you have to go to verses 4 and 5 and 6, where Paul says, let me tell you who's sufficient for these things. Verse 5, we're not sufficient in ourselves. You are not sufficient in yourselves. You are not. Paul says, I'm not sufficient in myself. Titus, Timothy, We're not sufficient for these things. You are not sufficient for these things. You are not sufficient for the task that is yours to spread everywhere, the aroma of your Savior and your Lord and your King. You're not sufficient. Except for the fact, as Paul writes at the end of verse 5, our sufficiency is from God, who has made us competent, who has made us sufficient, competent to serve as ministers of a new covenant. That's what you need to believe. That's what you need to get hold of. Are your gifts limited? Of course your gifts are limited. But here's the astonishing thing. Paul's gifts were limited. Paul didn't walk into a room and go, and everybody was at his feet paying attention. I mean, I keep using this description, but if you read between the lines of the epistles, most of what I'm telling you seems to be fairly accurate. He was short. He was ugly. He was sickly. He was not a good speaker, and he probably didn't have the most pleasing personality. That's why I like Paul so much. (laughs) But he was sufficient for the task. He was competent for the task. But his sufficiency was not his own. His competence did not come from himself. It was the Lord who made him competent. It was the Lord who made him sufficient. And what I want you to understand is that that same Lord is at work in your lives. No matter how difficult the circumstance, no matter how trying the situation, this is who you are, this is whose you are. And for this great task of spreading everywhere the aroma of your Lord and your Savior and your King, 
the Lord makes you sufficient, competent to accomplish what He intends for you to accomplish. The Lord doesn't have the same plans for every one of us. Doesn't have the same plans for every one of us. What He has planned for you may be something great and spectacular. What He has planned for you may be something that others would view as rather small and humble. It doesn't matter. What matters is what He has planned for you. And whatever He has planned for you, whatever His intentions are for you, however He chooses to use you and to work through you, you have to proceed to live your life knowing, I belong to the King and I am His slave, and to me is given the glorious task and responsibility of spreading everywhere the aroma of His victories over sin and death and the grave, and furthermore, from Him. I am competent. Because of Him, I am made competent. By Him, I am given whatever I need to do whatever He has for me to do. That was true for Paul. It was true for Titus. It was true for Timothy. It's true for you. It is true for me. Because we're slaves of the king. Now, if you're a little disturbed by the idea that you're a slave, get over it. If you're a little disturbed by the idea that you're a slave, I'll try to talk a little bit more about that next week. I've got about four pages of notes that deal with that. You want me to deal with those now? Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sure you do, yeah. Shall we take a vote? No, we won't take a vote. Okay, but we'll stop here. And uh, we'll continue at this point next Lord's Day morning. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time. Thank you for the wonder of your word, of, of the way in which um, it just speaks so powerfully uh, to the reality of life, to the reality of our circumstances. Here is Paul. He is restless, and then he is thankful, and then he knows that he is competent because you have given him the sufficiency he needs to carry out the task that you have set before him. That's who we are, Lord. May that be who we are. Yes, restless and concerned. That's not sinful in and of itself, but thankful to know who we are and whose we are and confident that whatever the task to which you have called us, you make us sufficient to that task, to the carrying out of that responsibility. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.